Wine Stories, a podcast to discover the world of wine by Etienne Pommier. If you go walking around vineyards this fall, you may catch a glimpse of the last pickers harvesting grapes. Leaning between the rows, they perpetuate the ancient ritual by cutting the precious bunches off the canes. Among all fruit-bearing plants, this liana, cultivated by men for more than 8,000 years, is certainly one of the most fascinating. If you ferment oranges, you will obtain a wine that tastes like orange. If you use cherries, you will get cherry wine. But if you ferment grapes that contain the precursors of nearly all the world's flavors, you will make a wine that tastes like anything but grapes. As the French author Colette wrote it, of all plants, only the vine can make us taste the true flavor of the earth. But what fascinates us about grapevines is also their exceptional longevity. The gnarled and twisted aspect of an old vine has an aura, something almost mystic that echoes of history, traditions, and romanticism as much as it promises a nectar. The oldest vine in the world grows in the city of Maribor in Slovenia. It was planted at least in 1570 and still produces a few liters of wine every year. In France, Henri Marionnet's vineyard in Courcheverny in the Loire Valley dates back to 1850. But what makes the quality of these ancient vineyards? How long does it take for a vine to be considered old? Is it absolutely necessary for vines to be old in order to produce fine wines? From France to Australia, via Italy and South Africa, we talk today about old vines, about viticulture, history, tasting and smuggling. The key reasons that explain the quality of old vines are well known. As long as they haven't been fertilized in excess, they have roots digging several meters deep in the subsoil where they can get all the required water and nutrients to fulfill their needs. This deep rooting makes them more resilient to climatic hazards such as drought. Besides, it is also believed that they have developed natural barriers against numerous pathogens since they have been able to survive for that long which is why they are highly sought after for propagation. Finally, old vines are less vigorous and, if well pruned, they tend to concentrate their energy on lower yields, richer in phenolic compounds and able to produce more profound wines. Furthermore, they often display signs of meandage, a ripening defect that produces small berries, thus increasing the pulp-to-juice ratio, which results in more concentrated musts. The Chambertin Trévieille Vigne from Domaine Joseph Roti, from a plot planted in 1881, and the Côte Lémiran from Domaine Serol, originating from a 75-year-old Gamay Saint-Romain plot, are perfect examples of the quality Mirandage can produce. This complexity, combined with smaller production, explains why old vine cuvées are typically more expensive than those from younger vineyards. But what is an old vine? At what age does the vine get old? In France, the term old vines is a so-called free mention, which means that it isn't regulated by law and remains at the producer's discretion. And this raises eyebrows, since there are old vine cuvées on the market from 30 or 40-year-old vineyards, as well as centenarian plots. Unlike France, 
other countries have chosen to control the use of this denomination, such as South Africa, with its old vine project, driven by vineyard manager Rosa Kruger. But the country that has established the most precise and comprehensive classification is the one where most of the world's oldest vineyards can be found. It is home to the oldest vines of native European varietals, such as Syrah, Shiraz, Grenache or Semillon. And this country is Australia. Since 2009, the region of Barossa has created an old vine charter, listing and ranking the oldest vineyards in the area in four categories. 35 years of age is the minimum to use the term old vines, but to be honest, there are so many aged vineyards in the country that it is uncommon to read it on a label for plots less than 50 years old. From 70 years onwards, we talk about survivor vines, literally, vines that have been able to survive and stand the test of time. 100-year-old vineyards are called centenarian vines, and beyond 125 years of age, they are called ancestor vines, a term used for plots typically dating back to the mid-19th century and the arrival of the European settlers. Among these ancestor vines, we can name the oldest Shiraz in the world, the Freedom Vineyard at Langmill, the 1850 Greenash property of the Cirillo family, or the Old Garden Vineyard planted in Mourvedre by German settler Friedrich Kor in 1853. This classification is a token of recognition and a proof of the vineyard's resilience, but also a tribute to the dedication of generations of vintners who have planted these vines and cared after them during all these years. While no vineyard is planted nowadays without extensive soil analysis, it is fascinating to ponder that it was empirical observations and farmers' common sense that guided the site selection for these plots. The ratio of very old vines in South Australia, and especially in the Barossa Valley, may seem surprising for us Europeans. How come the oldest vineyards are not located in Europe or in the Middle East when the plant is native to the Mediterranean basin? The answer lies in one word that I have already mentioned in the podcast about Chateauneuf-du-Pape, Phylloxera. This insect pest of the vine living in the ground that came from America in the 19th century on infected plant material has ravaged European vineyards within a few decades. Puncturing the roots to feed, it weakens the plant that will degenerate and die in a few years. Phylloxera, or Dactylosphera vitifolie, was spotted for the first time in Europe in 1863 in the Rhone Valley from where it spread. In 1869, it is observed in the Beaujolais and in Bordeaux, where it will destroy over 100,000 hectares of vineyards. Austria reports its first cases in 1872, and Germany two years later. In 1875, it arrives in Burgundy and in the Loire Valley. In 1877, Spain is infected, and Italy soon after. In the 1880s, the pest starts spreading east. Hungary, Bulgaria, Serbia, Romania, and as far as Crimea, where it is sighted around 1890. At the same time, it also reaches the northernmost vineyards of Champagne, and it is found in Le menil sur roger in 1892. The development of international trade, combined with limited quarantine and sanitary restrictions, will allow it to reach other continents as well. It is reported in Algeria in 1885, 
in Peru in 1888 and as far as Manchuria in modern-day China in 1914. It is believed that nearly 80% of the European vineyards have been infected by phylloxera before a solution was finally found. That solution is the grafting of the original vine on American rootstock immune to the parasite. The procedure had been described as early as 1868 by empelographer Victor Puglia. An empelographer is a botanist specialized in grapevines. But it will long remain forbidden by French authorities and it is only in 1878 that it will start to be allowed only for highly affected vineyards in southern France and regions like Burgundy will wait 10 more years to enable it. The fear of the authorities was that the use of American rootstock would alter the quality of the original vines and, to this day, many observers do believe that it filters out some of the complexity produced by the native cultivar on the finest terroirs. Ungrafted vines are called front pied in French, and they are extremely rare since phylloxera is still present in the soil nowadays and systematically attacks new plantings. Loire Valley producer François Chiden owns a Chenin Blanc plot called Les Bournets, planted in the 1990s, of which a few acres have been planted with ungrafted vines as an experiment. And luckily, they have managed to survive so far. In this parcel, he makes two wines, Montlouis Les Bournets and Les Bournets Front Pied. And the comparison is very interesting. The main cuvée displays a remarkable opulence with an intense bouquet of orchard fruits almost tropical in warm vintages and a fleshy meat palate balanced by a fine acid backbone. The cuvée Frampi, on the other hand, comes through as more delicate and less rich but reveals more aromatic finesse on notes of queens and beeswax with a saline minerality. If it doesn't quite have the power of its sibling, its aromatic purity and exceptional persistence make it a super bottle. This comparison, performed on the 2015 vintage, tends to support the idea of a rootstock that filters out some of the original cultivar's complexity. But if replanting experiments such as this one have been conducted, old ungrafted vines that have survived phylloxera are extremely rare. In Champagne, Bollinger owns two plots of vieille vine française, literally old French vines, that have been miraculously spared by the pest so far and produce a cuvée of spellbinding complexity and depth. Elsewhere in Europe, the volcanic soils of Mount Etna in Sicily have preserved some of these prephylloxeric treasures, such as Pietra Dolce's Vigna Barbagalli. These 120-year-old vines yield an ethereal wine offering nuances of rose and blood orange, as well as a very fine tannic structure. But it is in Australia that most of these very old ungrafted vines have survived, since the parasite doesn't seem to like the sandy soils of the Barossa Valley, and local vintners have long implemented very strict quarantine measures that have kept the pest at bay until now. In fact, if you have the chance to visit one day Henschke's Hill of Grace vineyard planted in 1860, you will be required to sanitize and cover your shoes before entering the vineyard. The gene pool of these very old vines is an absolute treasure and it is extremely rare that producers allow cuttings from these ancient plots. In order to understand the history and value of these old vines, I need to explain you how grapevines have traveled the world 
since the 19th century. A tale of pioneers, botanists, smugglers and even thieves. Since the Neolithic age, the development of viticulture has coincided with demographic changes and migrations from the Caucasus mountains where it all started to the Mediterranean basin. In the ancient times, the Romans have widely contributed to this expansion and the conquerors always carried plants with them in their campaigns in order to secure the wine supply far from the capital. During the Renaissance, Spanish and Portuguese missionaries used to bring woods with them to the New World and the first South African vines were brought by French Protestants fleeing the country after Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes in 1685. In Australia, it was in 1833 that the first cuttings were propagated on the continent, arriving in the suitcases of Englishman James Busby. After having studied viticulture in France, this ingenious son followed his family to Australia in 1824 after his father had been called on a construction project. Bringing a few cuttings with him, he started his own vineyard. In 1831, he comes back to Europe and travels across wine regions of France and Spain to bring back two years later over 680 cuttings of different cultivars that will be used for propagation in Australia and New Zealand. Throughout the 19th century, many European settlers from Germany or Italy will follow in his footsteps and bring their vines with them. Some of the plots they planted back then will be spared by the phylloxera infestation and represent today a formidable heritage. The outstanding concentration and finesse produced by these ungrafted ancestor vines, whether in terms of tannins or flavors, gives birth to some of the world's greatest wines as Henschkizil of Grace, but also makes plenty of more affordable wines with the generous and velvety character that has put Barossa on the map. In the 1970s, the development of viticulture outside Europe will push daring young vintners to collect cuttings in famous French vineyards, even if that's illegal. In the mid-70s, a New Zealand traveler coming back home gets checked by customs upon his arrival in Auckland Airport. Rumor has it that he was a rugby player. Customs officer Malcolm Abel inspects his bag and finds, hidden in a gum boot, a piece of vine. Quarantine laws being extremely strict in New Zealand to protect the unique ecosystem of this isolated country, he seizes the merchandise and starts questioning the man. The amateur smuggler then reveals that the cutting comes from Burgundy Grand Cru Latache, monopole of the iconic Domaine de la Romane Conti. For Malcolm Abel, it suddenly clicked. A customs officer during the day, he also was a vintner in his spare time. Understanding the importance of the piece of wood he has in his hands, he takes it upon himself to file the necessary paperwork for legal importation and he puts it into quarantine. After a few years, he is able to reclaim the cutting and plant it in his vineyard. Today, this Pinot Noir cultivar, known as the Abel clone or the Gumboot clone, is widely planted across New Zealand, including at Adarangi, one of the country's most famous producers. Due to its reputation of finest Pinot Noir in the world, the Domaine de la Romane Conti has often been, unintendedly of course, at the heart of several stories or myths of suitcase cuttings stolen in the vineyards to be replanted elsewhere. In California, Gary Pisoni from Santa Lucia 
is rumored to have insinuated on several occasions that his Pinot Noir vines come from illegal cuttings of the famous Burgundy domain. He has never confirmed it, and it's understandable why. He would have faced charges in France and in the United States for stealing as well as breaking sanitary and quarantine laws. Another Californian producer, Gary Eberly, is suspected to have taken Syrah cuttings from Chapoutier's Hermitage Vineyard back in 1977. Such tales demonstrate the value of the old vine's gene pool considered capable of withstanding viruses and producing great wines. But the pedigree of the plant doesn't do it all, far from it. And it is the affinity of a terroir with a certain type of vine that creates quality. As American journalist Eric Asimov put it in a 2008 article published by the New York Times, the truth is that the origin of a vine, whether from a clone boldly swept from Domaine de la Romane Conti or meekly purchased from the local nursery, is at best meaningless. The Grand Cru Association is a little like picking up a guitar like one Jimi Hendrix used and expecting purple lace to burst out. Fat chance. The real quality of old vines, as long as they haven't been infected by viruses or diseases, has built some sort of mythology, implying that great wines only come from old vineyards. But this is untrue. If an ancient vineyard can indeed produce a fine wine, it is not a necessary condition either, and there are multiple counterexamples that derive from the plant's life cycle. In the first three years of its life, the grapevine starts growing roots and it is only from the third year onwards that it will bear fruit. From three to seven years, the plant is still weak, with a low vigor and too little wood to store carbohydrates. Therefore, in order to ensure the survival of the species, it dedicates all its energy on a handful of bunches, and this phenomenon has a counterintuitive effect. Very young vines can produce great wines. When Marcel Gigal started making his Cotrotti La Turque in 1985, the vineyard is only three years old and yet gives birth to a classic wine. In Champagne, the Haute-Lamblée Chardonnay plot planted in the early 2000s by Cédric Bouchard started producing, as early as 2005, a beautifully pure and laser-focused Blanc de Blanc. And in Italy, one of the greatest wines made in the 20th century, Giacomo Conterno's Barolo Monfortino 1978, originates from a plot only planted four years earlier in 1974. When the vine reaches seven to eight years of age, since its survival is not as critical anymore, the plant grows more vigorous to develop its roots and wood in order to build its reserves. And from seven to 20, 25 years of age, the quality typically decreases slightly until the plant is deeply rooted. After 25 years, the vine finds its balance, if well tended that is, and starts producing at its maximum potential. But this potential depends on the quality of the plant material, such as the rootstock or the clone selection, much more than on the age of the vineyard. It's worth mentioning here that the term clone does not refer to any science fiction or genetically modified organism. A clone is a selection of a particular plant amongst others of the same cultivar for its characteristics. For example, if one of your vines appears more resistant to diseases compared to the others, it will be the one you use to collect cuttings for propagation. 
Doing so, you will select a clone, and there are dozens of clones of the same cultivar. As a result, the choices of the clone and the rootstock are key to determine the quality potential of a vine, let alone the terroir it is planted on. This implies that an old vineyard does not necessarily produce high quality. One of the oldest vines in France is located in Gascogne, in the heart of the Saint-Mont appellation. This vine is at least 150 years old. It has never seen phylloxera and still bears fruit today. However, even vigneron André Dubosc admits it. Honestly, the vine we make here is of little enological value. The reasons behind DRC's greatness are not only the exceptional terroirs and unique know-how of the domain, but also the supreme quality of the plant material. Because the old vines of Romane County, uprooted in 1945, originated from 300 years ago and had achieved a perfect symbiosis with their terroir. And it was these vines that provided cuttings to replant the rest of the domain's vineyards, as co-director Aubert de Villene explained in an interview to French newspaper Le Figaro in 2017. The true origin of quality in wine lies in the greatness of the terroir, in the symbiosis of the plant with this terroir, and in the talent of the producer to translate in the bottle all the potential acquired in the vineyard without altering it. And to me, it is that human element that is essential. It was man who identified the best terroirs and shaped the landscapes to plant vineyards. Old vines have only survived because of the generations of vintners who have preserved them to make wine. These wines, regardless of their intrinsic qualities and sense of place, pay homage to the work and dedication of previous generations. It is their legacy. Thank you.